Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel on the New Books Network. Before we begin, I would like to pay my respects to the First Nations peoples of Australia, past, present and future. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Wayne Hudson, who has recently edited with the New South Wales Judge Justice Jeff Lindsay a book titled Australian Jurists and Christianity, but the and isn't really an ampersand. They've put in a a cross, actually, to distinguish between jurists and Christianity on the cover, which is a nice Christian touch, I suppose. And um, Wayne is currently an adjunct professor at the Charles Sturt University and the visiting fellow at the Australian National University. And at Charles Sturt, he's in the Australian Centre for Christian Culture, which I think that's correct. Anyhow, I will let Wayne speak for himself. So thank you for joining us today, Wayne. I'm very glad to be with you. Could you tell our audience before we begin a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved in this book? Well, that's quite a long story because I'm more than 15 years old, but a long, long time ago I I studied arts and law at Sydney University and I then went to Oxford and studied German philosophy. And so for one reason or another, I've been interested all my life in Christianity, theology, philosophy and social and political reform. So I've had a bit of a run in all of those, if you like, at various places at various times. And I've known a lot of the people that some of your listeners would have been reading. So I've I've probably met most of the main theologians of the 20th century at one time or another and so on and so on. And as a result of that, I've become very unhappy with the way in which people discuss religion in the West. Uh, I'm contrasting that with, for example, discussion in Japanese, discussion in, in Chinese, and in a way also discussion in Russian, which is significantly different. But in the Western countries, there's a whole discourse about Christianity. There's a discourse about the secular. There's a general story about how Christianity developed. And I think all of this is very, very suspect and in need of radical revision. Now, I'm not the only person to say that, of course. There are people all over the world writing books saying that. But we're not getting that message yet through to the general public. We're not getting it through to politicians. And sometimes we're not getting it through to churches. So what I'm on about, if you like, is getting people to understand that we need a new vocabulary to talk about the things that matter to us in another age of the world. And just as we wouldn't use medieval Latin or 4th century Greek, so I don't think we can use 19th century European concepts, which is basically what we're inclined to do and what churches in particular are inclined to do, and that gets them into all kinds of problems they shouldn't, in my view, have. Now, this relates to the book in an obvious way because if you 
are using the 19th century concepts, you're going to think there are people called Christians, there's something called the law, they're distinct, there's something called religion, there's something called secular, they're distinct, and so on and so on. And you may even get into the idea that some Christians are Orthodox and Protestant and Catholic and whatever. But none of that, I think, catches what really goes on. So one of the aims we have in this book is to show the great importance of Christianity to the development of law in Australia, but also to show that the Christianity that shaped it was not the cranky Christianity of one or two ideologues of some faction, but a fairly widespread Christianity, which was in a way very New Testament, very close certainly to the scriptures and certainly close to Jesus, a Christianity concerned with peace and justice and humanity and uh, what Australians call the fair go, which is a kind of national phrase we use all the time, unlike Americans, and which we implement in a lot of our practices. Again, I would say unlike Americans. Uh, So I was interested in trying to get through to the legal profession, but also to historians, that Christianity has been much more important in this country than they currently say, that the Christianity that was important is not the one that they're thinking about. Because when you talk to people who are not expert in these things, they do assume Australia was secular, they think the university system was secular, they think the constitution is secular. Now, all these things are totally false. And then when we get on to Christianity, they start to worry about, you know, some clergyman in Sydney who had rather extreme views on predestination or or some Catholic priest who had 17 statues of the Virgin Mary in the church or whatever, none of which goes to what really shaped the country. Bearing that in mind, as an opening, I would like to turn my attention to the introduction which you wrote with Justice Lindsay to the book. And there's a, a section in there where you refer to the annual tradition in Australia in the Supreme Courts of the judges lining up early in the new law term, going into the church and getting a blessing traditionally from the Anglican bishop, but as time has progressed, it's now multi-faith. It's no longer traditional Christian, so we have them attending mosques, Greek Orthodox churches, Jewish synagogues. How is, is that itself a reflection of, of the change of the role of faith as it relates to the, to the law? I think it does reflect exactly that. I think that's entirely right, B. And I think it reflects also the point I just made. Because it's not that they're trying to relate the the law to Hindu beliefs, Jewish beliefs, Muslim beliefs, Christian beliefs. It's that they're trying to relate the law to the spiritual impulses that these traditions carry and bring. And there is in it some recognition, I think, that there's a good deal in common across them as well as a, a good deal of conflict. We can overestimate the happy harmony, but it's also a major mistake not to emphasise the degree to which there is common ground and a great deal of common ground when people are treated with respect. If you've dealt with religious groups in Australia, you'll know that insofar as they're treated with respect and given uh, money for their church schools, money for their Islamic schools, uh, respect in the supermarket, they're very willing to work uh, with one another. We had a case in Brisbane where the mosque was burnt down and the Christians rebuilt it. Now, that's quite typical, I think, of what has happened in Australia on the on the spiritually minded side, and I think that's good. What is not quite so good is that a lot of secular people are in a, into a kind of anti-religious rage at the moment. Now, there are various reasons for that, particularly having to do with aspects of gender and questions of sexual justice that we don't want to talk about perhaps today. But I think among the actually spiritually minded, there's a very real openness to diverse groups. 
and also an attempt to understand their own tradition so that they bring out aspects of its real content which doctrines expressed but which are not themselves just the same as the doctrines. There were two other aspects, these may be related to what you've just said as well, that come come up early in the book. The first, and this is almost a theme through a lot of the essays in the in the book, is that often when the essay writer writes about a particular jurist, they will cite invariably judgments where the particular jurist refers to, say, a passage from the New Testament. And it seems and then as time goes on, then they refer to other elements when, when the law might become more secular, which we'll come to. But one thing I noticed, and I'd like you to comment on this, it seems that there may have been a change in the way in which the jurists wrote about the New Testament for, or about Christianity. In the early days, it may have actually been put into a judgment seemingly as the moral principle that the court had to apply, but later on became a touchstone where the judge had a secular principle the judge wanted to apply and used a story from the Bible almost as a way to gain the confidence of the community, but the actual law itself could survive independently. The law doesn't re- didn't rely upon the gospel. So it's the classic example of Lord Aitken and the snail in the ginger beer bottle, which we can talk about as well. Donahue and Stevenson, yes. Oh, that's entirely right. But the reason for that is that Christianity in the 19th century is part of the common law. So it's not just that they quote Bible and refer to Christian passages. They're recognizing it as part of the actual law of the colonies. It is part of the common law. But in the 20th century, that in stages becomes less and less the case. And so then you're citing a Bible passage exactly as you say to reinforce a value being proposed regardless of of confessional questions. But in the 19th century, it's stronger than that. And of course, it, it does at times appear in in cases where there were still strong religious elements like blasphemy, uh, also at times probably in marriage, in, in, the, in matters to do with marriage and divorce. Again, for a long, long time, of course, it's the idea that marriage is secular is not the idea that the legal profession really has because the country begins uh, very definitely as a Christian colony in a certain sense, no matter what dreadful things they actually did. And the church, in the early days, the Church of England here is almost the established church. We've forgotten just how established they were. The importance of of Burke's Act was not just that it gave a bit of money to everybody, but it, it changed it so that the Church of England was no longer the apparent established church in Australia. That's quite important because even now I would say the Church of England is inclined, the Anglican Church of Australia, is still inclined to see itself quite often as the established church. But that's not the case. And with Richard Burke, you referred to Richard Burke there, Wayne, and I take it you're referring to the 1836 Church Act, and that was a way in which that the, the, the government funded only four, I think it was, four main religious groups to build churches, and the idea was that it wasn't to it was to defeat the idea that there was just one religion in australia but that in fact there was it was all, all christianity but there were just different species of christianity well there are two points there that are absolutely right and very important what happened in australia and it's not quite the same as the united states is that in australia the idea of common christianity is absolutely dominant to at least the end of the first world war and maybe after that so people are convinced that 
the country's Christian. They are Christian. They recognise very severe denominational quarrels, but they think there's a common Christianity, and that's in almost all the legal people. Uh, you might be an atheist and an agnostic, but that would still have been part of your position as a judge in a way. Common Christianity is very, very strong. The other factor we should mention is that Burke, of course, and Plunkett, who helped him as Attorney General, they both come from Ireland. And so part of the background here is problems in Ireland where things had gone badly, and then they introduced a more enlightened regime in Ireland. And Burke is learning from the Irish experience here. And that's another important theme in the Australian story, because quite often things change because someone who is very Australian in the sense that they're the actor here, has some link with another part of the world where the lessons emerge, something like that. So if you have someone born in Wales, they are going to have a sense of the Welsh church. They're going to bring to Australia attitudes that they wouldn't have if they didn't have that connection. If you have someone like Viramanti who's in Sri Lanka, you have someone who doesn't just know there are Buddhists, he's used to having lunch with them. And so there's a totally different view to how you manage multicultural diversity. And I think there is some religious background to Australian multiculturalism there. And you see it if you look at France now, which has laicity as an official uh, ideology, but is making an enormous mess. I mean, they can't manage their Muslims. Well, we have no problem of any kind like this in Australia. Every Muslim that I've ever met is very happy. They'll tell you they don't want to go back to the country they came from. They tell you it's wonderful here. And when you ask them why, they talk about fairness and respect. Now, of course, there's a, there's a bad side. Women complain of being treated badly. We haven't got all of it right. But the emphasis on a kind of inclusive Cultural inclusiveness is very important here. And I think that's something Australia's done very well. And I think it does go back to people who'd seen it somewhere else a bit. Would you comment on this then? The One of the things that the, the Church Act did was um, churches were built in public areas of Australia. And it's almost like now a lot of those churches may be less full but it's almost like the ghost of that there's these there's these massive public buildings all over the place and they still exist and they're still around everywhere else on the other side there is now in sydney at least i live in sydney i can name where from where i live in the center of sydney about 10 mosques within about probably a 10 kilometer radius which was and they're also public buildings so is that is that a, 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 a idea of the success of this idea of Australia not being wedded to a particular church? I think it's. I would go even further than that. I'd say that Australians. I say this in the, in my book on Australian religious thought, as you know, and we could talk about that another day. But I think that in Australia, there's a very strong tradition of what I call sacred secularity. Now, the secularity means that you don't privilege any religious group in political processes. Everyone is treated equally. There is no established church. But the sacral means that there are values, secular values, which are taken so seriously that they acquire a sacral quality. I think that's a feature of Australian civil society. I think it's the feature of our employment laws. If you look at them, compare them with the United States, you'll be shocked out of your mind at how much uh, more democratic and how fairer the Australian system is. And I think that comes from this sense that the secular is where the sacral may be found. Now, of course, in the 19th century, we are identifying the sacral very strongly with those churches and we built them. And that was very much part of the project in a sense. But as they decline, we have to be careful to think what's declining. 
Now, obviously, what's declining is what I would call separatist religion, the idea that religion's one thing in life. There are many other things. Religion's Sunday morning and that's it. That model, I think, is declining. But I think people of many kinds and many apparent ideologies can understand sacral values in the secular context. Now, the problem for churches is how to express this in a new way. And one way they're trying to do at the moment, which I think is very exciting, is to talk about post-secular Christianity. The post-secular word helps a lot because it means you accept the secular, but you see it's limited and it won't sustain itself. So you bring to it values that it needs and benefits from. Now, if you do that, you begin to make a new society and in the long run, I think, a new civilization. If you don't do it, you're going to face collapse. Could you also comment on another aspect of the book, which I think may factor into this part of our conversation, which is where the law changed so that when a witness gave testimony, they stopped needing to give an oath to God to eternal damnation, I imagine, if their evidence was false but they could give an affirmation to the court, which seemed to me to open up to a lot of other religious people could give evidence who previously perhaps couldn't have. There's that point, and and that was important in some cases with Aboriginal people who couldn't give evidence for a long time because they didn't seem to fit within the, the older English set of words. It also had, I think, the positive effect that people became more honest about what their current beliefs might be, because obviously the problem with the old system, uh, which is all over Europe, of course, under Christendom, is that everybody is Christian almost by definition. It's nothing to do with what you think or feel. And in these sort of contexts, you, you certainly swore the oath. Now, this was a kind of nonsense, of course. So it, in a way, it is again a moral shift, I think, towards recognizing that conscience in human beings is very important. And if they don't believe in in some aspect of Christianity or any of it. That's to be noted, perhaps, but it's not a reason for depriving them of citizenship, and it's certainly not a reason not to respect the the vision and the values they have been able to achieve. The Australian Constitution, the points made by a lot of authors in the book, has a preamble that refers to Almighty God, and it also has Section 116, which prevents a state religion. How is a, would a person now reading the Constitution, understand, other than a a historical nicety, but this is the Constitution itself has the words in it, Almighty God. Does that mean the law recognises God exists and you don't need to go to St. Thomas Aquinas' five proofs anymore because we have the Constitution? Or does it mean something else? Yes, I, I... I think, again, it's vastly different from the American case because in the American case, you know, I've recently talked, as you know, about deism and the influence on the American constitution. And in the American case, statements about God or the supreme being or anything like that are part of the real constitution and they have a certain real effect, I think, on how people conceive what it is to be an American. But the... the, the reference to God in the Constitution doesn't have any active meaning for modern Australians. At the time, it was very important. The churches campaigned for it. They got it in there. Uh, And it wasn't at the time in a way as controversial as it might have become now because nobody much doubted the existence of God in a kind of commonsensical kind of sense. Uh, Australia had no significant atheists, really very small number, and even people who were violently anti-Christian often had a sort of vague theism or something of that kind. 
So I, I think the difference is that in Australia, the religious element, which was there in the foundational document, doesn't constrain <laughs> the later development in the same way as in the United States. And it's partly because the Australians didn't adopt civil religion. Now, there's an exception, as everybody knows, Anzac Day. But it illustrates the enormous difference in the two cases because Anzac Day, which is a civil religious celebration of Anzac, widely followed throughout the country, comes actually out of Australian Anglo-Catholicism. It doesn't just have a Christian origin. It has a very Anglo-Catholic origin. And nobody knows that. Can you ex- You've mentioned that in other interviews. Could you elaborate on, 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 on the Anzac Day having an anglo Catholic origin. This is not my research. This is the research of Professor John Moses. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, he's written five or six articles on this, and he shows that a particular person, Canon Garland, develops a kind of ceremony for All Souls Day, and this becomes Anzac Day. <coughs> but again, you have to remember that in the First World War, uh, the people that we call Australians who are fighting at Gallipoli are still in many, many ways part of Britain. Large numbers of them go, quote, home to London. They write letters back saying, I find this amazing, but they, they, they have an, an identity, but that identity, while it's strongly Australian in one way, is not yet a separatist national identity. And, of course, you have to remember that uh, even when I was a child, when I went to China for the first time in 1968, my passport said British subject. It didn't give this sense of Australian citizenship that people have now. And when I got to Beijing, the British embassy staff turned up and took all the Australians to lunch because we were their people. Now, that's unthinkable to modern Australians, but that was the story in 1968. So imagine what it was like in 1914 or in 1880. The, and with Anzac Day and War Memorials, there is research in Australia that I've come across where references often made that they that the this actual the actual monument built might use the word God on it, but if you didn't if it didn't have that word, you wouldn't recognise it as being anything to do with Christianity. It's just a, almost a public symbol, a public nice looking symbol. I think that. Well, there's an enormous, there's been, there's a major debate, of course, between Henry Reynolds and Marilyn Lake on the one side and a number of Anglicans on the other side about Anzac Day. And what Henry Reynolds and Marilyn say, which is quite correct, is that it's very strange that Australians try to define their essential identity through war. These are odd things to take as the essence of your national identity. And in the long run, we won't. I'd be very confident about that. And even in the case of Anzac Day, the reason it's successful isn't because of its military character, but because it honours the dead in a sacral way and the people who come don't have anywhere else to go to honour the dead in a sacral way. And is honouring the dead, is the, is the act of honouring the dead, is that also what ties it back to Catholicism and Anglo-Catholicism? Well, yes, because it was originally All Souls Day. It was a ceremony for the day in the official calendar when you pray for the dead. And, of course, Australian Protestants didn't do that, but Anglo-Catholics did. These are Anglicans with very high church beliefs. Speaking of high church Anglicanism, if you walk into a courtroom today and you see a judge sitting on the bench, at least in New South Wales, the judge will be wearing a robe, 
a a um, gibbet around the neck, a white tie around the neck, and a wig. The judge will, in fact, look almost identical to an Anglican priest you would see, for example, in a Jane Austen film standing up at the altar. Yes. But if you walk into the Anglican church today, you're very unlikely to see that. You're much more likely to see someone in civil clothing. How would you explain the fact that the, ch- that the church has almost lost its vestment dress and the courts have hung on to it like there's no end to, to that? Well, again, I'm not an expert on the history of Anglicanism in Australia, but it's very important to understand that in the early days of the colony, the people that come here, the Anglicans that come, there, there is Marsden and there are some uh, evangelicals who come and they're very important in Tasmania as well. But there's a strong group of Tractarians. These are very high church Anglicans and they come to Australia. And then in the 20th century, the Anglican church in Australia is much more Anglo-Catholic or high church than anyone in Sydney would believe now. I mean, now you associate Sydney Anglicanism with very strong evangelical tradition. But historically, the Australian Anglican church had very strong high church tradition, particularly in the outback, particularly in North Queensland. In fact, they used to say anywhere that was hot was very high church. Now, uh, even now, there are Anglo-Catholic and high church churches in all Australian cities. Sydney is unusual in only having three, but Melbourne has many more. And it's a great mistake to think that the Anglican tradition is only evangelical. The, The Anglican compromise was, of course, to bring Reformed Christians and Catholics into the same church and keep them together. And to do that, they had to allow a lot of variation around the common Book of Common Prayer and so on. Uh, if you go to Christchurch St. Lawrence in Sydney now, you'll be pretty amazed to find that this is an Anglican church because I don't think any Catholic church in Australia is as high, probably, as Christchurch St. Lawrence. But that's the historical thing. And also it's important to know that these high church people who dressed up in funny costume were also very important in working for the poor. The Brotherhood of St. Lawrence has an outstanding reputation for its work for the poor. So they were, although they were in one way uh, establishment and a bit toffee and inclined to have strong English accents, they were also very busy in helping homeless people, in helping the oppressed. And so this is to, uh, a factor that needs to be brought into the balance, I think. The, the reason that 18th century clergy people look like 18th century judges is that they're both officials of the state at that time. Now, I'd like to ask, I'm going to raise a couple of people who are referred to in the book who seem to have some very interesting connections with law and religion. One is the High Court Judge Ron Wilson. And Justice Wilson in, was, in the book makes the point that not only was he a High Court Judge, but he was also for a time the President of the Uniting Church in Australia, which seems to me at least to be quite a strange a strange balance between having those two offices almost? I don't think so because Wilson was, as you say, uniting church. But what does that mean? It means that his Christianity was not essentially late medieval. I mean, you could say that at the time of the Reformation, Catholics and Protestants are fighting, but in a way they've accepted the same idea of what Christianity is about. They're worried about what you believe. They're worried about doctrine, things of this kind. But that's not Wilson. Wilson is out of a a liberal Christian Uniting Church type strand. He's read Karl Barth, he's read Paul Tillich, but his Christianity is not essentially doctrinal. It's about 
love and peace and justice and so on and so on. It's very much implementing the Sermon on the Mount. He comes through that door, if you like, and he can do that equally well as head of the Uniting Church and as a High Court judge. There's no evidence of him making legal judgments with a particular Christian bias in a narrow sense, though you could say that everything he ever did, he says himself, and it's quoted in the, as you know, in the chapter, that there was no contradiction at all between his Christianity and his work. And that's a style of Christian witness, which you find throughout the whole history of Christianity. There's always a type of person who's terribly, terribly worried, you know, about, oh, how we're going to define some matter of the, the law of Leviticus. And there's another kind of person who's worried about slavery. And many evangelicals, of course, were outstandingly prominent in worrying about slavery. And the people that worry about the injustice in the world and do something about it are actually quite similar, regardless of the of the door they come through. And you see that in the book, that regardless of what church these people start with, they all end up in what I'd call a, a Sermon on the Mount kind of Christianity. And they're much less interested in doctrinal questions than you might expect, uh, Plunkett and, and Brennan would be partial exceptions, but that's just because they've got more theology, if you like. They've read more of the stuff. But most of the lawyers are not deeply learned in theological controversies. I mean, I don't think they could talk for three hours about Calvin. You know, they know the name certainly, but they, they might have read the Institutes. I'd even doubt that in most cases. So in Australia, the the thing that is so important is the kind of Christianity that shapes the country. And that is less the late medieval stuff that made the Reformation pulsate, then it is this other very broad tradition. We have another book coming out later this year on Charles Strong, uh, showing the importance for the Australian settlement of Charles Strong and the Australian Church in Melbourne. This, again, is a little-known group of Christian people who include the Prime Minister and many other important people, and their contribution to Australian uh, law and economic management is huge. Uh, the book will establish that, I think. So, again, it's a matter of helping Australians to understand how much the Christians contributed, but also that what they contributed was not ideological. I mean, they were not in a way asking people if they were saved. Yes. So we, on that point, with there's also a chapter on in the book on Christopher Wiramanti, yes. who is a Sri Lankan jurist, who came to Australia, was a legal academic and ended up on the International Court of Justice and tr had a distinguished career taught at Harvard, all sorts of things. Yeah. And he did not – well, Sri Lanka does have uh, strong Christian roots, but it has lots of other – Buddhist, Hindu. And he seems to also have had the same, the same social conscience that you would expect to have of a liberal yeah. Christian. Does that show – what I would like to ask you, Wayne, is – does that show that the idea of having a liberal conscience actually has very little to do with a person holding on to a particular religion or a creed, but more to do with just a human being's compassionate outlook on the world? I think it's a fair question. I mean, in his case, that he is a, a unusual, of course, in that he's into all these religions before everyone else is. And, of course, he writes a major book on Islamic jurisprudence. So he doesn't just tolerate them. He doesn't just look for common 
perspectives across them, but is prepared to actually work on how one of them, Islam, is realized in concrete law. So he is an outstanding figure. And a lot of what he's trying to do, you know, the whole world in a way is now understanding. If we look at the mess in Afghanistan, everyone understands that it might have gone a lot better if we just started with Islamic law. So he's a very forward figure in a way. Uh, I think the problem of creeds and beliefs is very important and hard to hard to address in a careful way. Uh, people talk about it all the time, but they're not careful enough. So what I would suggest is that religious movements only survive if they have some rigid bonding. They can't be permanently elastic. The ones that are permanently elastic, like Unitarians or very liberal Christians or very liberal Muslims, go out of existence within 30 years. The children don't continue. So you can't survive without rigid bonding. So one of the problems for any major religious movement is what should we have as religious bonding and what should we be flexible about? And that, of course, changes over time. We've got to be a bit clever about that, depending on the world you're in, depending on whether you're in uh, Fiji or Syria, your choices might be a little bit different. Obviously, they're going to be different in China. Chinese Christians are under enormous pressure at the moment, and they'll have to think very hard about that. But I think what we can do that's quite helpful is to say that dogma and doctrine and belief are all different and shouldn't be confused. And there's a tendency for people to confuse them in an unhelpful way. I mean, dogma is like quantum mechanics. It's high stuff for a professional little group of experts, and they do know what they're saying. Ordinary people do not understand quantum mechanics after it's explained to them, and they certainly don't understand the theory of the Trinity after it's explained to them. So that's the dogma stuff. And that, that stuff, I think, is part of the rigid bonding stuff. I'm not liberal about that. Then you come to doctrine, and that's more pragmatic, because doctrine has got to move the people you're addressing. Doctrine has got to shape the society and the lives of people. If it's just a set of highbrow statements, it does nothing. So you need this second level of doctrine. And there you have to be very evangelical, if I can use that word, but in the sense also of understanding that what will give the gospel to people will depend on culture and depend on time. You wouldn't say the same thing to a medieval peasant in South Spain as you would say to someone in Japan. And we all understand that. And that's where I think a second kind of finesse comes in. And when you come to belief that there, I'm a bit more sceptical because I always make the point to people that you can very rarely determine someone's beliefs. Uh, you can in a certain way of clergy or of people who are perhaps in Sydney Anglicans or Sydney Catholics, both of whom are rather crankily into beliefs. But in the hard cases, like judges on the high court or politicians, it's very difficult to determine people's beliefs because partly they believe in the folk religion of their hour. I mean, it's a simple example. If you say to any Australian, do you believe in matter? 98% of them are going to say yes. If you ask them what is matter, they can't answer you. So you see this belief question can be misleading because we can't find the evidence. All the evidence is clear. They all say they believe in it, but they can't tell you what it is they believe. So I'm less keen on belief than most people, but I'm keen on doctrine and dogma, if that makes sense. I think it's a useful way of sorting that one out. Now, just a couple more questions, Wayne, before we end our conversation. The first is you have had experience in the United States. And one, one 
I'm personally proud that the Australian High Court is not, to my mind, politicised and particularly not politicised across left or right or religious or, or religious or non-religious grounds so we don't have the Brett Kavanaugh-type situations in Australia. Is that something that, first of all, we should be proud of and cherish? And secondly, if that's so, what role then does a book on Australian jurists and Christianity have to play in our society when it might not be as an important point as it is in, say, America, where it's not going to change the way people have access to health rights and things like that? Yeah, that's a that's a big one, isn't it? Because one of the problems is that the United States, as you know, is older than most European nation states. Now, people don't know that. They think of, you know, Italy as an old country. Well, in one sense, yes, but Italian nation states terribly new, 1848. America is much older. And so what you're dealing with the US is an old society whose patterns were settled in the 18th century. And, of course, those patterns sit very oddly with the contemporary world. And so one problem is that this is an old country that's had trouble adapting some of its structures. It's adapted its economy. It's adapted its science brilliantly. But in political and legal things, I think Americans have struggled. And I agree with you. I think the the way they approach the politicization of of the Supreme Court is outrageous. Uh, You may know that in the United States, the Supreme Court has held that all companies are persons, so that companies can't be limited in the amount of money they can spend in electoral campaigns. Now, that would never get up in Australia. There would be no one in any Australian court who would think of that as anything but wicked and monstrous. So the difference is as big as you say it is. I think that's right. But I think that the, the two cases don't have to do with Christianity and politics so much as with the different histories that formed the two cases. And because Australia has a very different set of causes to the United States and also a different immigration pattern. I mean, for example, in the United States, there's a very significant German immigration. And all over intellectual America, people speak fluent German. Well, in Australia, that's not true. Most Australian academics don't read German or speak German. We had only some German immigration to South Australia and to Queensland. It's not an intellectual migration as it was in part in the US. So the difference in the two patterns of development are the key, is the key thing, not the religion thing. As far as this book and Australia now, I, I think it's partly a question of trying to, to get the record a bit straight, and that's always hard to do, but it's important because every time a country gets that, it's it's real history wrong. There tends to be bad consequences of that, I think. But the other thing is that the book can help a little bit, I think, open a bigger question that all Australians need to talk about in the next five years, which is how are you going to ground your values in a society that is not overwhelmingly Christian and in which artificial intelligence, eugenics, uh, all kinds of things are going to impact and in which there may be no people at all within 50 years. And this kind of situation, we're all going to have to work out how are we going to ground our values. Now, we could do it individually, but we have to do it publicly as well because if we haven't got some values we share, there won't be any community in our country. Now, I think what the law book shows is that the Christian influence here generated good values which everybody could participate in. So you could have gone to a high court judge who was orthodox or anything you like, really, and still come away and accepted the values he was appealing to in the judgment. 
Now, I think that is a major contribution of the law in, the, in this country, and I think the Christian influence on that law is very significant. We're going to need those values in the future, whether we need churches and mosques or something else, but we will absolutely need the values. Yes. Okay, one final question then for you, Wayne, and it seems speaking with you, what seems to happen at least to me is I just think far out and you think of so many other things that need to be explored. It would take a, a millennium to go through all this. <laughs> yes. But um, the final question is, Justice Kirby, the former High Court judge, Justice Kirby, is an essay about that judge in the book. Justice Kirby, to my mind, his public persona is a compassionate man, a, a man who cares about other people, a Christian, an Anglican, in fact, and also a man who identifies as being gay. And to me, that is, I don't imagine that many younger Australians would think twice about any of those facts I would think of them as broadly consistent. That's my impression. But I couldn't imagine that have been Justice Kirby having been anywhere near able to take such a stand 50 years ago. And what would that say? What does that say about how Christianity itself is perceived? Is it actually, are we talking about the same thing now that we were talking about 50 years ago, or is it something different? I think you're right. I think it's something different, you see, because 50 years ago, Christianity is the is part of the social cement of the society. So when you get married, you get married in a church. This doesn't mean that you're a devout religious believer or your girlfriend is a devout religious believer. It means you want to get married. And you do it in a church because that's the way we do it. That's where that's dealt with. If someone dies, there's a fair chance you have a funeral and you might have a, a religious ceremony of some kind. This, again, did not necessarily mean you were a very devout anything. It meant that you were having a funeral. 50 years later or 60 years later, we've changed enormously in being in not seeing the, the formerly religious as being the basis of the social cement. So that's one huge change. But the other big change is that 50 years ago, I think moral judgments were simple reflections of what the community thought about things. I mean, certainly when I was a child, there was very little sense that you could be homosexual. There were, everyone knew there were gay people. They were referred to at times. You could see people, sometimes that people would point out that they were gay and so on. But there was no social acceptance of any gender complexity. And that's because people simply repeated the social mind of a society almost without question and certainly without reflection. And Christians had a tendency, I think, to quote Bible to agree with the social mind. Now, I think these days one of the things that's happened that's very interesting is that people are more other-directed than then, and they come and they try to assess the people, assess the, what the reality really is. And you'll find in the case of gay people, I mean, people attacking gays are very rarely people who've got gays in their family or people who've got a lot of experience with gay people. They're almost always rather isolated, cranky people. So I think what's happened is that the centre of moral judgment has moved from rules on a blackboard, which is very much, you know, late medieval stuff, to what the society thinks and Bible passages agreeing with it to our present thing, which is more discerning the reality of the people itself. 
And of course, that is supported by better Bible scholarship, because as the biblical, and your people will know this, in the last 50 years, been enormous progress in the study of the Bible. And part of that has been to make us understand how very very plural and complicated it is. It isn't as though it's got one set of ideas running through all those pages. That's nonsense. And as you see the complexity of it, it helps you, I think, to see the need to grasp the complexity of your moment. So I think there's actually a development from a Christian point of view in Christian conscience there. From one that is very, you've got to remember that the people who condemn gays also didn't have any problem with shooting deserters, or most of them wouldn't have been too worried about dropping nuclear weapons on Japanese cities. Now, we don't think that now. If you say to young people, was that a good idea? They don't think it was a good idea. Nobody thinks that mass slaughter of innocent people is a great idea. So I think there's been a growth in Christian conscience as well as a growth in secular conscience. And if I could end where I started, part of it, I think, is that the Christians of learning that the sacral is in different places at different historical periods. And in our historical period, one of the places where the sacral is is in the secular world. Yeah, that is where you started. Yes, very, very nice ending, Wayne. Um, well, thank you for your time today. It's been a, it's been a, a great conversation. So many ideas. Just too many out. ideas, and I'm sorry if it's too fast. Yeah. No, it's 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 great. Um, and you said you're working on a you're finalising a book later this year on Charles Strong. Is that that's correct? That's what you're working on now. It's, I've only written the introduction. The book is edited by Marion Maddox. It'll come out from Melbourne University Press later this year. It is quite good. It, again, is this business of setting the Australian record, the history right, so that we realise and recognise how much we owe to the Christians. In this case, uh, good laws about how to control wages and how to make sure that ordinary people have fair wages. And we've achieved that in Australia. It comes from Charles Strong. And in another way, uh, who was a radical uh, uh, Protestant Christian in Melbourne, and another way it comes a little bit out of the common good teaching of the Catholic Church. But what happened in Australia that people have also forgotten is that evangelicals and Catholics sometimes agreed, and when they did, the country changed. Well, thank you, Wayne. Well, this has been Bede Haynes on the New Books Network. We've had Professor Wayne Hudson with us today. His book, Australian Jurists and Christianity, is out from the Federation Press. If you've been entertained by what you've heard today, please order a copy. And thank you once again, Wayne. And please don't forget to review this show if you're so minded. That has been another episode of the New Books Network. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.